I look at a Vanitas painting by Hermann von Steenweich, where you just have these objects on a table. And, you know, there's a skull and there are books and there's an oil lamp and so forth. But everyone in the Dutch Golden Age who would have seen that painting really wouldn't be so interested in the objects and the surface level of what's being depicted, but instead the message, the moral, the message of vanitas. Do not concern yourself with the pleasures and diversions of this life here, but instead prepare yourself, lead a sober life for the eternal life to come. And there are many ways in which a painting can convey that uh, message. And AI is barely touching that class of problems. Art history is a lot like archaeology. We here in the present day get artifacts and records, but the gaps between them are enormous, and the questions that they beg loom large. Historians need to be able to investigate and interpret, to unpack the meanings and the methods of a given work of art. But even for the best, the act of reconstruction is a trying test. Can we program computers to decipher the backstory of a painting, analyzing light and shadow to guess at how a piece was made? And, even more ambitiously, can AI learn to see and tell the stories rendered in an image's symbolic content? Recent innovations yield surprising insights and suggest a cyborg future for art scholarship in which we teach machines to not just recognize a set of objects, but to grok their context and relationships, shining light on messages and narratives once lost to time and deepening our study of the world of signs. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week, we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we speak with David G. Stork, who has held full-time and visiting faculty positions in physics, mathematics, computer science, electrical engineering, statistics, neuroscience, psychology, and art, and art history, variously at Wellesley and Swarthmore Colleges, as well as holding corporate positions as chief scientist at Rico Innovations and fellow at Rambus Inc. We talk about what happens when computers look at art and the implications for art history and connoisseurship. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give and or rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. David Stork, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. This is a very interesting topic, and I would like to start on the ground. Let's talk about your background, because you started as a physics major. Sure. How did, how did I come to start using computers to analyze paintings? Yeah. Like, why was this an interest to you? What set you off on this path? 
I come from a family steeped in the arts. My great grandfather was court painter to Crown Prince Rudolf, uh, uh, Franz Joseph, rather, in Austria, and his paintings hang in museums in Austria and elsewhere. I won't go through all the arts folk in my family, except to go down to my younger sister, Kathy, who was chief calligrapher in the White House under Bill Clinton. So I was raised steeped in the arts. And early on, though, I got very interested in science, but didn't see much of a connection between the two. And my science, pure science career was doing very well. But while a graduate student, I wrote a book and then later taught some courses on optics and perception and vision and so forth. And the connection and the application to art was really fascinating to me and very fascinating to the students. So I had that sort of background. At MIT, I was indeed a physics major, but my senior thesis under Edwin Land, the founder of the Polaroid Corporation, was on human visual perception in Mondrian images, things that involved color perception and things like this. And then in my PhD, I worked on human visual perception, very mathematical and technical and solving wave equations in the retina and things like this. But the connection to the visual arts had always sort of been in the background. I grew up in Chevy Chase outside Washington, D.C., and hence had great access to the National Gallery and all the great museums in Washington. And frankly, you know those docent tours when you're at a museum and some docent is leading around 10 people and point. One of those absolutely changed my life. I don't know if that woman is still alive, but uh, American art at mid-century on American abstract expressionism, Jackson Pollock and, you know, Mark Rothko and Arshel Gorky and, and so on. And I saw so much more. There was so much going on in these artworks that I had no idea was going on before then. And so while at MIT, I cross-registered for art history courses at Wellesley College, which was a very, very good um, art history department. And I got a sense of the depth, the subtlety, the problems that arise in art history. And I just got fascinated. And to skip over a <laughs> few decades, at the year 2001, I was invited to a big conference in New York to analyze artist David Hockney's very controversial theory that Renaissance painters secretly used optical devices during the execution of their works. Spoiler alert, they did not, <laughs> certainly not that early. But my work involved a lot of technical analysis of perspective and lighting and contours and things like this. And they really showed that computers can outperform even human experts in some very restricted classes of problems. And I got very, very interested in this. And bit by bit, I worked with more and more conservators and curators and art historians and so forth at major museums and things like this. And I started developing these techniques and taught the first courses on that at Stanford and have lectured all around the world. And now it's really blossomed and I'm working from now at 700, as of this morning, 731 pages on my book on the subject. So that, that's how I got here. <laughs> so when you spoke at SFI earlier this week, I was taken by 
the way that your approach to you know, reconstructing the methodologies used by painters looks like kind of a, a crime scene investigation. You're trying to figure out, you know, like you said, what what were the tools? What were the weapons? <laughs> How did they build the pyramids? It's, 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 it's a form of archaeology, kind of. Well, yeah, art scholarship, art history. At SFI, I only had a chance to talk about one small portion of my total work, which is involved with what kind of lighting did they use? Was it consistent? How can we use this these lighting analysis tools to identify the, as we say, hands, the number of artists who worked on a given, given work? We're looking at perspective for perspective inconsistencies and things like this. But I've also worked on authentication, including works like Jackson Pollock, by image. Now, a full authentication protocol involves looking at pigments, what pigments were available, what pigments were used, the support, carbon dating, and a whole host of things. My research focuses on what you can do with the image. What does a connoisseur do when he or she analyzes a painting or drawing? And those are the kinds of techniques that I'm trying to embody and implement in algorithms. So I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit about the work that you've done with Vermeer, Girl with a Pearl Earring. (laughs) This question of, we look at a painting and you say, did they actually use a living subject? Were they looking at something and Mm -hmm. painting from life? Or were they painting from the imagination? Or did they use optical tools? No, Vermeer is one of the most wonderful artists, but he also brings together some of the highest technical questions you ever get. In fact, your audience can't see it, but I'm holding up to you this issue of heritage science, the girl in the spotlight, a technical re-examination of Vermeer's girl with the pearly. It's an entire small book just on the technical analysis of pigments and paintings and uh, the glazing techniques and the supports and, and things like this. You could spend a lifetime just on Vermeer. So yes, what I spoke about at SFI was lighting analysis. So we use model dependent and model independent methods. Model independent methods are where you don't need to make any assumptions about the three-dimensional form, in this case of our face. Model dependent ones you do. So we looked at cast shadows, the reflections off her eyes, off the pearl. One of the most powerful techniques, which actually comes from forensic photography, is called the occluding contour algorithm, which is looking at the pattern of light on the outside of an object that's being illuminated and inferring from that pattern of lightness where the light must be coming from. And the question of where was the light in Vermeer's studio, actually, that alone isn't very interesting. But what is interesting and what we showed really definitively, is the astounding agreement, the astounding commensurateness of the estimates from all these different sources. So that shows certainly that there was a girl present in his studio in Delft when he he made this, but it also shows how accurate he was. And there are several other artists like Georges de la Tour that we've worked on, whose nocturnes, these dark nighttime scenes, are renowned for their portrayal of lighting throughout the scene. We show in ways that no connoisseur's eye, frankly, can really elucidate 
the consistencies and the inconsistencies in, in other artworks through these computer techniques. And it turns out humans actually are not very good at inferring lighting, seeing lighting differences. In other talks, I show a picture of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, which were on the cover of, I think it was the Star magazine anyway, that was photoshopped, that we'd say tampered. And the way you can determine that is by this occluding contour algorithm, looking at the side of Brad's face and Angelina's face and inferring that the lighting is very, very different. But those fakes get into the popular discourse very easily because we are so bad at noticing these errors. But the computer techniques are absolutely superb. And so these have many applications throughout art scholarship. And that's, that's the kind of thing I'm working on. So can you talk a little bit about how you build light field models and then how you use that to analyze paintings where you have a question about whether this was a painting that was done all at once mm -hmm. or whether this was a painting where the background was painted and then the, the subject was painted later. Sure. Right. You can identify the painter was actually like walking around trying to recreate <laughs> a light source. Sort of. We applied our techniques to a contemporary painter, Garth Herrick, who lives in uh, Philadelphia, whom I learned about when I was a beginning assistant professor at Swarthmore College many years ago. And he works from photographs. He does a lot of official portraits of senators and congressmen and mayors and such like and so forth. And it's difficult to get famous people to stand in your studio for weeks on end. So he goes out and takes a photograph of the, the figure, but he wants this figure to be in front of a certain background. And that might not be, generally is not his office. So he goes somewhere else and takes another photograph, goes back into his studio and is now painting using two, we call them reference, two photographs. And when he's painting the background, he looks at one photograph. And when he's painting the figure, he, he looks at the other photograph. There's no guarantee that the lighting in those two photographs is commensurate from the same direction, the same distribution and so forth, or that he can detect that, as I just mentioned, and then fix or make it commensurate. So we've looked at several of his paintings and asked the question, can the computer tell that the lighting in the background is different from that on the figure? And the answer is yes, in, in certain cases. And this works even in complex, we call them light fields, the, the pattern of light coming from many different directions. So light coming through a window, from a candle, reflected off the floor, whatever it might be. It can be arbitrarily complex. And that occluding contour algorithm I mentioned can be generalized to infer not just the primary direction the light's coming, but instead the entire light field. And we describe it with five numbers uh, using a spherical basis function set. The mathematical details I, I needn't go into. But basically, it's a way of saying, ah, the lights has this pattern on this figure, but this other pattern on someone else, and thereby tell whether they were done under the same studio conditions and so forth. And so for Garth's paintings, we did Human on My Faithless Arm, which he painted in two episodes or campaigns, we call them, 
he painted the background. And then nine months later, he moved to a different, he had moved to a different studio, different time of year, different position of the window. He was painting in a mirror. And so his self-portrait had somewhat different light field on him than the background. And it's difficult to see by eye. I've shown not just the digital image, but the actual painting in my hand to art scholars. And it's hard. You really can't tell, but the computer finds it immediately and definitively. So that's how we use lighting analysis for that kind of question. Yeah, there's the, the cast shadow analysis also. Yeah, the cast shadow is one of the simplest. You actually don't need computers to do the basics of cast shadow analysis. You just take a point on an occluder like the tip of girl with a pearl earring's nose and its corresponding cast shadow point and draw a straight line. But if you have many cast shadows and you want to infer the most likely position of a light source for all that cast shadow evidence, you use technique called maximum likelihood estimation. It's a standard statistical technique, but applied in a special way for two-dimensional artworks to say, ah, given all this lighting information over Georges de la Tour's Christ in the Carpenter's Studio, for instance, the most likely position for the illuminant is here and not here. We did that analysis in order to test David Hockney's claim that that painting was done with the light source, quote, outside the frame of the picture. It absolutely positively bet your life on it was not. <laughs> <laughs> so as you alluded to earlier, there's this, this other dimension, which is the use of tools, of mirrors, lenses, projection techniques. You give an example of the Van Eyck Arnolfini painting. Oh, yes. And in your talk, you presented a, a rather thorough run-through of how you actually like recreated the entire crime scene <laughs> of this thing. It's not a crime. This is one of the most sublime and important paintings of the Western canon, the first double full-length double portrait in the West, one of the earliest portraits in oil paint, the first painting in the West to show an action, something occurring inside a domicile, inside a home. No, th this painting, it's not a crime. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. But it is, I mean, I guess, you know, historically artists were not really incented to show their work, right? And so the point is that it's a crime that we don't know how it was done. <laughs> yes, it's true. Some artists had secret techniques for especially mixing pigments that they would keep secret, but often they would announce that they had secrets. I've got a secret method, you know, like the Venetian glass workers are the prototypical example. The ways in which they heated sand and so forth and made their glassware was a big secret. And there were penalties for revealing these secrets, um, but they were announced as secrets. But the question about whether certain artists used optical aids is really, really quite fascinating. And first of all, we know some did, Canaletto and Thomas Aikens, the great realist painter from the Philadelphia area. But I find it really frustrating when you start hearing this, the, the first thing that the scholars or casual folk want to talk about is whether it's cheating or not. I find that so 
profoundly intellectually lazy. The real question is first, did they do it? Yes or no. And after that, it's fine to talk about what it means, whether it would have been cheating, how it affects the transition of art and the development of art and so forth. And so we've gone through, we've spent several years on, I don't know, maybe 20 papers by now on different aspects of this in order to answer these questions. And I think we've done it. And the, the scholarly community is now, I think, universally on the side that someone like Jan van Eyck did not use any optical aids directly during the execution of his works. There's a modified fallback position. Well, maybe he saw an optical image and that of in, indirectly influenced him. I don't know how you test that. We have no documentary evidence. There's so many other sources for this rise in the realism of art around the time of Van Eyck, including the invention of oil paints, that it's very hard to address that modified version. But the direct case, I think, is completely solved. And part of solving this was you took a, a detour into the mirror that appears in this painting. Oh, absolutely. Yes, the convex mirror at the center of the Arnolfini masterpiece is, most scholars would claim, the most famous mirror depicted in all of art. It's right at the center. It shows the back of Arnolfini and his wife and the two witnesses to the wedding coming through the doorway. It has metaphorical significance because it's convex, bowing out, and so it gives a wide-angle omniscient view of the entire tableau as if God is watching. And, oh gosh, I could talk for hours on this, but I mean, one of the most famous paintings, one of the greatest paintings is Las Meninas by um, Diego Velazquez. And the Arnolfini portrait hung in the Alcazar Palace in Madrid. And so he certainly saw it. And that influenced Velazquez to put in a plain mirror in the middle of the uh, Las Meninas. But the question we addressed, the technical question we addressed, was answering the explicit claim of David Hockney and his scientific colleague, uh, Charles Falco, that that convex mirror turned around to be a concave mirror could have been used during the execution of the work, of the painting itself. And there are a dozen reasons why that cannot be true. One is these mirrors were not perfectly circular. They were blown glass and would have imperfections. So even if everything else were perfect, the image that gets projected, we've shown through computer ray tracing, would have been far too blurry. Second of all, those convex mirrors were coated with metals to be reflective like mirrors, but then coated with tar so as to seal it in so there would be no reflection whatsoever. And what I showed in my SFI talk was that the focal length would have been far, far, far too short to comport with the geometry in the actual painting. And there are other rebuttals, but, but those are the main ones. So the technique we use, we've actually done it three different ways. The first came from Antonio Criminisi in um, Cambridge, England, but done two others, which is basically model the reflection off of a convex sphere and undo the mathematics, if you will. Find what radius of curvature, what bulginess of the mirror comports with the image that we see reflected in that painting. 
And that gives us the radius of curvature. And it turns out the focal length of such a mirror would be one half that radius of curvature. And it cannot comport with the geometry in the painting as a whole. And this is a real technical detail. I, <laughs> maybe it's too much for your audience, but um, you might say, oh, well, maybe Van Eyck did a piecemeal patchwork projection. He projected this part of the window and then traced that, then moved over and did some. That can't explain the evidence either, because there are all these nice, long, straight lines on the floor, on the windowsill, along the back wall, the ceiling, the bed, and so forth, which would have curvatures and breaks as well if you did that. So no. <laughs> you know, so one of the questions that this seems to be answering is specifically the reconstruction of the timeline of the innovation of painting technologies. Yeah, that's a very, very important question. Surely technology has influenced the development of art in many ways. I mean, photography alone, the, you get the snapshot framing in paintings in, in France after the invention of photography and a whole host of things. The, uh, one of my favorites here at Stanford, I can almost see it from my window here, is the very famous Edward Muybridge sequence of the running horse, the, the, the famous debate from Governor Stanford, whether all four legs of a horse left the ground simultaneously. And paintings before then, let's see, Jerome and several others, show them with the, the, the front legs forward and the back legs backward flying off the ground. And everyone thought those look very natural and dynamic. And yeah, he's got that right. After the Moybridge movie, proto movie, showing that Yes, all legs are off simultaneously, but it's when the legs are underneath the belly of the horse together. The front legs are back, the back legs are forward. Once you see that, the previous versions frankly look silly. And so that's just one of hundreds of ways in which technology has changed how we see and thus how artists create. So I, that seems like a, a good place to peg into the other half of this, which is about semiotics and, and, and meaning and training machines to actually interpret art yeah. the way that a, a human art connoisseur can interpret art. You have a piece on this computational identification of significant actors in paintings through symbols and attributes. And I just want to say, it really is, it's a steep learning curve to get into this kind of appreciation because especially in the Western canon, it's like, it's just hundreds of white guys with beards, right? <laughs> and so how do you tell them apart? And, you know, it's not like we're operating from a photograph. Of course not. It's a canonized figure, but there isn't a bedrock of empirical ground truth face to work yeah. from. So yeah. what are the problems for machine vision created by this that are not present, you know, when you got Google photos trying to do facial recognition? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that brings up the, the broader question of, you know, what problems does art pose that traditional AI is not addressing. And 
this is one of them. The, the to me the most important, and frankly, it was sort of an epiphany. I, I can go back to that, but. Most photographs are taken to document something. Here I am on the beach. Here's the bowl of spaghetti in front of me. Look at this, everybody. Oh, isn't my dog cute? And things like this. Art really goes, I'm speaking in the broadest of terms. There's a great deal of art that was created in order to convey a story, a moral, or a message and have a meaning that the artist has an intent. He or she is trying to instruct you in some way or inform you. And most of in the history of Western art, most of that has come from religious art. These are stories from the Bible. These are morals. This is Adam and Eve, you know, Abraham and Isaac and, you know, descent from the cross and, and things like this. All of these are screaming with meaning. And as you will recall from my SFI talk, I look at a Vanitas painting by Hermann von Steenweich where you just have these objects on a table and, you know, there's a skull and there are books and there's an oil lamp and so forth. But everyone in the Dutch golden age who would have seen that painting really wouldn't be so interested in the objects and the surface level of what's being depicted, but instead the message, the moral, the message of vanitas. Do not concern yourself with the pleasures and diversions of this life here, but instead prepare yourself, lead a sober life for the eternal life to come. And there are many ways in which a painting can convey that uh, message. And AI is barely touching that class of problems. There's a whole branch of computer vision called, you know, semantic image analysis. But semantic for them means, oh, there's a person on a man on a horse, a woman walking beside and a tree in the background and a river. To them, that's semantic, understanding the meaning. To me, that's nowhere near what is going on in the visual arts, which is one step further. You're really getting to the intention of the artist, we call them authors in this case, whereas in ph photography, you don't. And so... This is the class of problems that I'm working on with colleagues in Cambridge University and England and elsewhere around the world. And the paper you're referring to was just a first stab at that. If you take Verrocchio's uh, Baptism of Christ, a very famous painting in the Uffizi Gallery in, in uh, Florence, it shows Christ standing in the middle, uh, St. John the Baptist pouring water over his head. But... How is it that the audience recognizes who these people are as a step towards understanding the meaning of Christ, you know, is washing your sin, taking your sins and so forth. And in religious art, we have something that's really <laughs> very interesting to me. They're called attributes. For those of us who work in pattern classification, we have a different word for use for the word attribute. But in religious iconography, an attribute is something that an object that indicates the identity of someone. So St. Catherine is a wheel because she was martyred on a, a wheel. Christ might have a cross or a lamb. St. John the Baptist has the cross. And there are literally thousands of saints and some of them have very unusual attributes, including one I had to look it up. 
silk gloves. There's a saint whose attribute is silk gloves. Anyway, the religious authorities, especially in the you know Renaissance and later, would include these as patrons would have the artists portray these in order to instruct the illiterate parishioners so that, you know, an illiterate person in, you know, a cathedral in France would look at this and say, aha, I see that cross or the shell or whatever it might be and know not only the actor, the the saint, but also the story. And so that's the kind of mental process that goes on in an art scholar's and general public's, literate general public's mind. And we said, can we do this with a computer, with algorithms? And the answer is yes, in our preliminary studies. Basically, we have two, they're called deep neural networks. They're AI techniques for doing pattern classification and other things. And one of them is for what's called semantic segmentation, breaking the image so that you can identify where there are people and where there are not people. And so applied to that Verrocchio painting, you would get the two main figures in the um, tableau. But then we had another deep network that was trained using art images to recognize those attributes. In this case, the dove over Christ and the crucifixion cross in the hands of um, St. John. And then it's a very simple geometric problem to say, all right, for each identified attribute, which figure is closest? Very trivial. And assign that, look up in your database, ah, this attribute means this saint or, or actor. And so indeed, the computer can say, ah, this is Christ in the middle, and this is St. John. And we've done it on a number of paintings, and we're expanding that technique. Now, at one level, it's easy. I mean, if you show this to an art scholar, they say, oh, obviously, you know, you just you can tell that's Christ. What's the problem? This is one of the banes of those of us working in pattern classification. We work for decades to recognize a hand or a face or something like this that a child can do. But to me, this is one of the first steps towards this entire class of problems that AI really isn't addressing, and that is inferring the meanings, the intention of the artist. So there's a lot of work to be done on this, but um, that paper that we published just last uh, last month was exactly on on this, and we're working working hard on pushing it forward. Yeah, it seems related to the issue of using the application of machine vision in robotics, because there's this question of you, you may be able to train a warehouse robot to recognize or a caregiving robot to recognize when someone, you know, a hand, that's a hand, but the difference between a hand that's reaching out to hold tenderly or a hand that's reaching out to strike yeah. in an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And that seems somewhat related to a complication that you, you mentioned in this paper that there's an additional layer of context and inference required because in spite of the fact that, you know, yes, everyone has their unique attributes and we're not just talking about Christian artwork. You mentioned the Greek and Roman pantheon. You mentioned the, the, the Hindu artwork. This is very much a universal human 
a phenomenon. And not to interrupt, but or to interrupt. Likewise, telling the professions of people. This person's holding a violin. I have an idea what he or she does, or a shovel and, and things like this. So yeah, it, it's much broader than Christian art. The, the reason we worked on Christian art is that there are a lot of examples, relatively large, small compared to the number of photographs that exist but on the web. But uh, in, in the art world, there's a lot of r- religious art and there's a very intentional and specific use of these attributes in order to basically convey a meaning. So that, that's why we chose that first, but it, it's a much broader class of problems. Yeah. So, so to that point, you know, with a violin, for example, someone holding a violin could be a violinist, but they could also be a luthier. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you say uh, multiple saints share the same attributes. So for those cases, the attribute taken alone is not sufficient for accurate actor identification and a more probable probabilistic inference may be necessary based on a global criterion of all the actors and their simultaneous presence in candidate stories or episodes. So it seems as though what you're getting at is that it's about teaching computers how to read the room, yeah, as it were, the contextual clues. Melanie yeah. Mitchell gave a, a great talk on this about, say, a self-driving car encounters someone walking a dog across the street but you know okay you can say that's a human that's a dog but if if you don't know the relationship between them yeah then you don't know how to respond yeah there are a lot of sort of sub versions of this this problem but yeah i mean at one level this is as we call it ai complete that it takes full human level intelligence and cognition and memory and so forth to interpret. I mean, things like common sense, that death is a bad thing. Where does it say that in the painting? Why is Christ's head dipping down to the side such a bad thing? This is going to take a long time before we really get that kind of level of common sense. So as AI has progressed, it's it's started on smaller problems that are relatively constrained that nevertheless illustrate key classes of problem solving. And that's what we're trying to do with art. But here's one thing that you you do not get. This is one really fascinates me and you do not get in traditional AI. And that's the role of style as part of meaning. That if you take the same content, two people standing by a riverside, and you portray them in different styles, the meaning of the work will change. So for instance, in that Van Steenwijk still life, the fact that all those objects were extraordinarily realistic, they worked extraordinarily hard. Someone like Peter de Hoek would spend days on a really small passage to get the textures right, the subtleties. Not only did that showcase their technical facility, but the goal was to say, this is real. This is right in front of me. These aren't saints floating through sky with halos on their heads and clouds all around them. No, this is the world that is right in front of you. If you were to have that exact same content portrayed in an impressionist style or pointless style or abstract style, the meaning would be certainly lessened, maybe even drained completely. And that to me is a really fat. And artists, of course, know this. They bring this 
aspect of style towards creating their meaning. And just to give you one other example, Roy Lichtenstein is a very famous American pop artist. His paintings look like comic book images. And one of his most famous paintings is called Brushstroke. And it's this, just I think it's on a blue background, but it's a big yellow brushstroke made like a cartoon. So it's that, it's in this cartoon style that makes it savagely critical of the previous art period abstract expressionism, you know, Jackson Pollock and Joan Mitchell and the great abstract expressionists who made their gestures very visible and so forth. And now in the moment, you know, in the instant, and now Liechtenstein is going back and drawing it very carefully, making it in two colors, black outline, yellow in the center, like a comic book. And it's that style. If he were to have the exact same thing in a realistic style, like a brushstroke, the meaning would have been entirely different. So this to me is an incredibly fascinating problem that art really far more than photographs conveys meaning from the lowest levels, the colors that you use, the brush strokes that you use, all the way up to the composition and so forth in ways that photographs really don't. I don't mean to beat up on photographs, but to me, great art just has the kind of levels of depth of analysis that even some of the best art photographs I don't think can match. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of photographers sending you angry emails, but I'm going to stick to that one. <laughs> actually, no, you actually spoke directly to a question that some of the people following our coverage of your talk on Twitter had about this, which is the circumscribed utility of this kind of forensic reconstruction technique when it comes to, you have to make certain assumptions about the intent of a realist painter mm. given the period and the school and so on when the reality as you just said is that even working from life the painters will alter a scene for any of a number of reasons and so where does sort of part one of this conversation break on part two yeah god What's the solution for the the meta layer at which it may look like you've managed to say conclusively that the light reflections off of this object are wrong, therefore... Yeah, no, this brings up the kind of early criticisms I got from the art community before they really knew what I was working on and, and the kinds of techniques. If you have a very shallow understanding of my work, you say, oh, Stork thinks that... A painting is right if it's in perfect perspective, and it's wrong if it's not. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that whatsoever. We are using these techniques to understand and quantify these aspects. And we're, these are not normative judgments. The Arnolfini portrait is not wrong or bad or worse because it's not in proper perspective. These were the techniques at the time. We have to understand the art in its context. But when there's a claim that the chandelier is in perfect perspective, that is an objective claim that regardless of the period, and as you saw in my talk, I also did some analyses of uh, chandeliers painted in 2004, I think they were. So we have to be very 
aware of the context and the questions. And frankly, the part of my work that I'm really most proud of, or is not most obvious to those who, who see it, is how much time I spend corresponding and talking and meeting with art scholars to understand questions that they have. I'm not doing my work for computer scientists, really. I mean, the later stuff, I think, will push AI in new directions, and I'm eager with that. But it's much more important to get a good question that is relevant to the art community solved reasonably well than to solve a problem that's for the computer scientists and do it extremely well that the art community doesn't care about. If I worked really hard and made an absolute superb edge detection algorithm that worked superbly on the Mona Lisa, there's not an art scholar in the world who would care. And they shouldn't. It doesn't matter to them. I'd much rather identify a problem, often with them, almost always with them, that they say, ah, yes, if you can solve this, that will help us. So here, here's just one example. I gave my talk on Vermeer at the Mauritshaus Museum in the, the Hague, where the girl with the pearl earring hangs and view of Delft. This is a superb, small, it, it's Mecca for those of us <laughs> who love Vermeer. And then the chief conservator came up to me afterward and said, I've got a problem for you. She took me back to the uh, conservation studio and showed me paintings by Jan van der Heyden, a contemporary in the Dutch golden age of Vermeer, who did these cityscapes that they're called capriccios because he would put together buildings that weren't actually always next to each other. He'd say, oh, I'll put this building here. or oh, I like that building there. And he used a technique for painting his bricks, thousands of teeny little bricks that look perfect that may have involved counterproofing, basically taking a metal plate, etching it in the pattern of the bricks and then printing it, pushing it against the paint, to leave uh, patterns. And if he did so, maybe he would have done, used the same plate on multiple paintings. You can't, uh, and so the same exact same brick pattern would appear in different paintings. You can't detect that by eye. The amount of work of getting a painting in front of you and let me try, oh, look over here, that one. No, but this is perfect for computer search. You get a template, basically, of a patch, and you, you check every other painting. And so we published a, a paper on that. I had known of Jan van der Heyden, but I didn't know about this question. It came 100% from the chief conservator at the Mauritz House, and we published two papers on it, and that's what I love doing. <laughs> that's actually great. You led right into the next question that, that I had for you, which was about the fact that historically, you know, even realist, quote unquote, realist painters doing portraiture for clients were often subtly or not so subtly incented to flatter their oh, of client, right? You know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cut a few inches off the waist. And, you know, <laughs> so you would imagine that like light field analysis would reveal, so they, oh, actually, you know, Henry VIII was probably 20 or 30 pounds heavier than <laughs> he's depicted in this image. So you've got a similar kind of problem now. And I think people are thinking of this as a kind of qualitatively new problem, but your work reveals that there is a continuity here between that kind of question and that kind of approach to answering the question with deepfake forensics. And sure. yeah, I mean, the fact is that 
we are perhaps now more than ever astoundingly vulnerable to what York University philosopher Regina Rini called the epistemic backstop of (laughs) recorded media, you know, that we believe a photograph. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on applying these techniques, not just to art history, but to the present day and making sense of and figuring out what really, you know, it's sort of like a swallowing the spider to chase the fly <laughs> kind of thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's an evolutionary arms race of counterfeiting yeah. against forensics. Yeah. But how do you think that these tools can help us find the base truth of our lives oh, in, in a world that's just increasingly <laughs> spinning out of control? Well, I have ambitions, but maybe that's that's too large to to restore Western culture to an epistemic unity that that got lost once deepfakes started flooding the internet. Let me step back and give you a class of problems where I'll call them semi-forensic. I mean, my lighting analyses can tell whether there's great consistency in portrait lighting and other lighting. And a question that art historians address is centered on the portraits of Rembrandt, of course, one of the greatest portraitists portraitists of, of all time. We know he did many of his portraits from the figure. We know who these people were. We have the records of the how much they paid, when, when they sat for him and so forth. So there's no question whatsoever that so-and-so was sitting in Vermeer's studio in Amsterdam on such and such a date. There are other portraits, often of saints and so forth, where it's much less clear. We Basically, we know that he did it from his imagination. He wanted someone with this kind of curly nose. Maybe he found someone on the street, but often didn't. And then there are examples where we really don't know. Art scholars debate, what's this a real person in Amsterdam, or is it from his imagination? The research I'd love to do, and it would involve a lot of a lot of work and getting the data, but I suspect that the lighting would be far more consistent on portraits done from the figure, and it would be much less consistent on portraits done from his imagination. And then when we had one of uncertain origin, we could do the lighting analysis and say, aha, look how consistent it is. It's as consistent as if there were a figure there. And therefore, that would give at least a probabilistic suggestion that there was indeed a figure there or not. Now, I don't call those deep fakes. I mean, Rembrandt wasn't trying to fool us. He wasn't, you know, hiding it, you know, lying to us in any way, deceiving us by making a painting from his imagination. But these techniques may allow us to go that one level deeper, sort of like a deep fake, but deep fake has an epistemic overtone that Rembrandt portraits don't, <laughs> at least in my mind. Here's a somewhat smaller bite-sized question, which <laughs> you addressed and you brought up towards the end you know, in the Q&A of your talk that something on the order of $1 trillion in art worldwide is believed to be misattributed. Well, uh, or fake. Yeah. No, the, the problem of fakes, I could talk for many hours on this. I mean, it's a profound and deep, deep problem. The 
number of fakes and misattributed works is really, really large. And it might be as high as 20% even on museum walls. Now, that doesn't mean they're all fakes. They're just misattributed, that art scholars make honest mistakes and so forth. I've heard quotes that in the commercial market, it might be as much as 40% are not authentic. It, it's hard to say because there are all these forces making it difficult to, to find them out, to find those facts out. The largest one, at least in my mind, is that there's a legal doctrine called defamation of property. If you own a painting that you're telling everyone is by Van Gogh and it's worth $100 million and I come out and say, no, I don't think it is, you can sue me. Even if I'm right and so forth, then you can completely ruin my life. I, I don't want to get into the, the legal sides, but the problems of authenticating art is really deep and, and profound. And the kind of image work we're doing, I think, can help in certain examples, but it's only one small part of a full regimen. You have to do iconography, look for what are called anachronisms. There was the Terrace Museum's debacle two or three years ago, a, a museum in the south of France, um, which had, I think it was about 140 paintings, of which 82 were determined to be fake. But one of the reasons they could tell was that they were landscapes that included buildings that were built after the artist's death. So, so a later forger artist went out, tried to use the same style, but inserted a building. So that kind of technique, also looking at material composition, iconography, there are a whole host of very difficult, you know, complicated ones. And image is just part of it. It's true at the time of Bernard Berenson and the early connoisseurs, the eye reigned supreme and bit by bit, uh, scientific analysis and x-rays and infrared re reflectography and all these other techniques got brought to bear. But the technologies I'm working on only address the pure image analysis part. There is another level of analysis, which is how do you put together this information? How, do, when you have different sources of information, each with different reliabilities, you know, when, when five scholars disagree, what do you do? Well, what I'm in fact writing right now is a paper on taking the techniques from medical diagnosis. There are now AI systems that take objective measurements like blood pressure or chemical compositions of your blood and so forth, along with subjective or more subjective measures and puts those together in a way to get the best diagnosis. And you learn from large corpora, large databases, of medical data in order to do this. And I think the same kind of rigorous probabilistic inference can help in putting together the different sources of information, all with uncertainties in attribution and authentication of art. So that may actually be an answer to the last question I had for you, which in keeping with the <laughs> uh, oddly religious tone of this entire conversation, is what do you regard as the holy grail of this yeah. trajectory of the evolution of this technology? Good question. There, there are a number of layers. I mean, in my lifetime, I my goal is to get these computer techniques to be part of every art history 
school and technique that 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 art historians and curators and connoisseurs will use these these methods the way computing has revolutionized every other field basically biology chemistry physics and and, and so forth that that trying to do the vast amount of chemistry without computing is it's it's unthinkable now but in the long run long meaning <laughs> once we get human level ai i would love to see how we can take a scholars a, a connoisseurs knowledge and capture it in some sort of algorithm so that a complex very complex system so that we can then say how would bernard berenson have responded to this painting that we just uh, found and the deep deep far far distant blue sky dream is for such a system to come up with a novel not just an interpretation of a deep artwork but a novel one one that captures our our attention admiration and becomes part of the scholarship but that is so far away i'm reluctant i'm almost loath to, to mention it because the art scholars in your audience are hitting the base of their palm against their head and they're they've turned off the the podcast already so <laughs> It's very, very far away. Very far away. That said, 30 years ago, compositional style transfer seemed unfeasible to many people. And so maybe it's not so unbelievable that you might be able to model and, and resurrect art critics. I, I agree. But a better example is chess. You know, when Alan Turing proposed chess as a test for artificial intelligence, it's not a good one. But at that time, the human grandmasters thought this was silly. But now you can download this kind of software for free on your phone. And every world-class grandmaster is working with computing for chess day in, day out, playing against them, learning, exploring different routes and so forth. And in the same way, I think that's someday what will come to art scholars' approach to some of the great masterpieces. It gets kind of recursive. You can imagine that portraits of the saints of art history in another 200 years might be depicted with the attributes of their attribute detection algorithms <laughs> sitting on their shoulder like angels. You know, I don't envision this for a long time, but that people will create art in anticipation of it being analyzed by machines. But the economics aren't there. People... <laughs> People make art to communicate with humans, and that's great. That's left us some of the greatest experiences that we can get with our eyes. Well, I mean, certainly we already have adversarial fashion designed to spoof facial recognition algorithms. So, I mean, it doesn't seem completely out of the pale. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't think the artists, it's true, the technologists are doing this, but the artists who want to communicate something want to affect humans. And that's great. <laughs> well, David, this has been a total joy. Where would you direct people if they want to learn more, if they want to go deeper with Gosh. this material? Well, the first would be the SFI recording of my talk. I have a talk online at the Frick Collection. Just search the Frick and then David G. Stork. I have a website, which I have not updated for several years. I've been too busy. Search on my name and then art analysis. 
in the long run, everyone should buy my book, Pixels and Paintings, Foundations of Computer-Assisted Connoisseurship from Wiley. It's not yet done, but that will be sort of the compendium of the state of the art up, up to now. And just look online. Those, I think, are a good source. Excellent. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Michael. It's great joy. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.